This episode of the Noble Warrior Podcast is brought to you by C.K. Lynn Mindset Coaching for Entrepreneurs. Whatever mental blocks in your life you want to overcome as an entrepreneur, fears of failure, inability to take the actions you know there is to take, fear of success, three steps forward and four steps back, or even that thought of not feeling deserving after achieving all the success. Coaching is one of the most valuable tools you can have. It's an investment in yourself, and it can yield some of the highest returns. C.K. Lin has the skills that will empower you to achieve the most accelerated results you've dreamed of. To help you get started, C.K. is offering podcast listeners a free strategy session with him, a $1,000 value. Visit TalkWithCK.com and schedule your free session today. Today's guest is widely considered to be a renaissance man. He started many businesses in many industries, from engineering to virtual reality to entertainment to cryptocurrency. But if you're tempted to dismiss him as a man with natural fearlessness and creativity, well, think again. He had a debilitating fear around heights and decided to spend many months to systematically overcome that. And he used the same principles to tackle flow and creative pursuits. He helped himself out of Lyme disease. He's a TED speaker. He published a best-selling graphic novel. He's a regular contributor to the Huffington Post. He has performed around the world the principles that flow into his piano sound bath to empower others through a unique sound meditation experience. In his spare time, he's writing two books sharing the science behind fear and flow and how we can also transcend our boundaries and access more of our superpowers. I think it's abundantly clear that he is a self-made renaissance man. So please help me welcome a modern day renaissance man, Rave Mehta. Is it when black mold is like the most toxic mold you get? And what is that by the way? Sparagellus, penicillium, um, mm. there's five kinds of the, so it's the most toxic. It's like Lyme, like you get it. Oh shit. Yeah, you just totally fucks your system and most people don't know they have it. Oh, wow. I was able to figure out I had it pretty quickly because I got it in November. And uh, so it's like I had Lyme all over again. Oh, shit. And I what like, are the oh, symptoms? I can't breathe. Lyme is all sorts of weird shit. Your whole nervous system gets out of whack and like your heart starts palpitating and stuff. My symptoms were all of a sudden my chest all tight and I couldn't breathe. Oh, wow. And I went to the ER the next night. So I did a stem cell treatment uh, thing. And it, it uh, and because I had some black mold in my system from my house in Florida. Which I didn't know until three days later. There's some black mold in the uh, over by the ceiling of my guest bathroom. And mm. It act, it actually grew the black mold in my system instead. So the stem cells fed <laughs> the black mold in the oh, man. And then next night I was like, oh, "What the fuck? I can't breathe. My head feels weird. My brain felt really fucked up." And then uh, so I'm in the ER at one in the morning and couldn't find anything wrong with me. I'm like, gosh, fucking like Lyme again. And then. Um, Got back and I have these vials. Like I have this way of like checking and scanning myself. And uh, um, what? What are those? These are all my vials. So these are all pathogens, all the pathogens, parasites, bacteria, viruses, fungus. Uh huh. What do you do with it? Uh, I muscle test myself. Uh, so I could test what's in my system or what organs weak, and then I could figure out what's in my system that's causing that organ to be weak. Huh. These are all the heavy metals and chemicals. Like radiation, and then uh, if I know what organs weak and I figure out what vial makes my arm strong, then I know that's what's affecting that. That's what's affecting that organ, and then I have all these remedies that I could test against myself, see which one my body wants to detox that hmm. that toxin out of my system. 
so so I have like fungus that's just mold and um so I was able to quickly figure out hmm. um that that's what I had in my system and then um I did you verify it? Yeah. yeah, I verified it. Uh, well, more better than that, I had a mold inspector come to the house to see what was going on, to inspections, and this very specific. So I have vials that is, that has that actually tells you what kind of black mold, asparagus, wow, and whatever, and those were the exact two things that were floating in the house. Holy shit! And the, so I tested, so I validated me first, and then I had the mold guy come in like two weeks later, and those mm. were the same things he found there. And then yeah, then just blood tests and the candy to the kettles way high and all that stuff. So um Wow. So yeah. Yeah, and I've I mean, I've been doing this for years, so this is how I got help myself get better from Lyme. I was able to detox all the So time. I have a question. Yeah. So because as a scientific person, when I first heard the idea of muscle testing, yeah. My mind was thinking, ah, is it really true? Is it a placebo effect? And then but the more I um have grown, the more I obviously know that so many people, smart people like you, you know, t- actually use it. So can you unpack that a little bit? Like, why do you think it works? Or kind of goes it, well. It's resonant frequencies, works. right? Mm-hmm. So it's just frequency. So, um, so what I was able to figure out is this larger framework of flow, mm-hmm. you know, what flow is, and like where it comes from, and how to access it. And it kind of comes down to well, in this case, it's frequencies interacting with your field. So the field of those values, because What's what's in those vials are not actual parasites. It's the frequency of all the parasites, like the right, like the right frequencies or the uh, oscillatory rates of all these various pathogens or chemicals or whatever variations of it. That's why you can fit it all in the vial. Hmm. So when you put it up against your body, your body has a field, and you put it up against your body. Then, and if it, if you feel your muscle flip on or off or change, there's a change in muscle response. Then, you know that frequency is conflicting with something or or resonant with the frequency in your body, that means it's there. Mm. So if it doesn't have any effect, that means your body is not, it's like just passing through, there's nothing. So how do I know if it's my muscle getting getting tired? Well, I'm pushing, I'm pushing on your arm. Uh So I push on your arm and this muscle here, you could overpower and you could be a strength test, but it's not meant to be a strength test, it's meant to be a check to see if this muscle right here is on or off. Mm. And if I touch your heart and your heart has a deficiency and I push on your arm with my other hand, then, this muscle turns off, your arm gets weaker. Mm. And then if I um, touch your lung, your lung is fine, your muscles stay strong. Mm. So I just quickly like hit all the organ points or the acupuncture points and figure out which ones are weak. Then I narrow down from the weak ones to see what are the root uh, organs that are weak. And then once I find the root organ, I'm able to then use these vials to figure out what's causing that root organ to be weak, you know, what toxins or pathogens, whatever. I call them inflammatory triggers. Mm. So what are the inflammatory triggers that are causing that? And then once I figure out what the trigger is, then I go to my remedies. If I know it's lead causing a liver to be weak, deficient, then I know these five certain things can help detox lead. And I put each, have you hold each one, mm. see which one makes it strong. And mm. then I know the one that makes it strong. Are they the yours or are they yeah, with the company? company. Oh, you develop them? No, 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 no. The, the supplements, no. These supplements I got from like standard process. These are companies. I see. And then... I um, I've like I have four types of things I use: complete foods, whole foods, uh-huh. uh, organic herbals, organic whole foods, organic herbals, homeopathics, and oils. Wow! So they're all like natural stuff. And uh, so like these are homeopathics, these are homeopathics, these are herbals, these are whole foods. Wow! And like standard process, and chiropractors use that systemic 
you know, a lot of chiros and alternative doctors use that, um, naturopaths, um, energetics, these are the blue bottles. I mean, they're, they're stuff that's out there, but they're prescribed, they're prescribed. They're like these are the energetics, these wow. are standard process. So these are the actual product size, those are sample kits. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it's interesting because um, I could like very quickly identify what's going on with the person's body or what what's making the causing their pain or illness or whatever. Oh, yeah. you, you've used your own system so much that you can actually now diagnose someone else. Yeah, I mean, Easily. even in the beginning, yeah. Like, I mean, oh, really? it just tells me, like, oh, it's like my girlfriend has celiac disease, so mm-hmm. I don't look at the names of diseases and stuff. I just look at what the symptoms are and what's causing it. And then I figured out she had all these chemicals and metals and stuff causing inflammation in her gut and uh, sensitivity, especially with GMOs. Mm. Gave her stuff to like start detoxing that stuff out, which are one of these things or a few of these things. Mm. And in two months, she was able to eat a donut, which had gluten and had no reaction. <laughs> so like the incurable. Yeah. And this is now 300 people later I've helped. So wow. ranging from simple things like a bad flu Huh. to MS, breast cancer, eczema, um, you know, Crohn's, celiac, fibromyalgia, like all these things that are considered incurables because they don't know the root. All the chronic stuff, mm. Western medicine is really not great at because mm. they don't know how to go after root causes. They they don't look at a system. They look at organs, mm. right? And they, and they only can do pain management around that. Right. So, um, or symptom relief. Symptom at management, best. yeah, at best, at best. And, and, and in doing that, they're introducing new chemicals and neurotoxins mm-hmm. in your system, which then increases your nervous system flipping out on you. Mm-hmm. And then it causes problems in other areas. So so there's, uh, so this has been super efficient. There's, it's non-invasive. I don't have to wait three weeks for test results to come back. I know right now what's going mm-hmm. on. I give them stuff right now. Come back a week later or whatever, or two days later, day, you know, whatever, one the time and check them again and find out you know, if it's working or not, I could track the concentration levels so I could see how much of it, where in your body it is, mm. and then how much is there. Mm. And then if I know how much is there, I could track it as you take the supplements, whatever, coming out. Mm. So as you have, you know, five, you know, one X, like track it by dilution level. So one X is maximum concentration. And I could watch it come out like 10X, 30X, 50X, 100X. So I know it's going in the right direction. It's not stuck. You know, so, uh, hmm. so like even the Western science can't track this stuff coming out of your system very well, no. if at all. You right. know? And they do it only through blood, but most of right. the stuff's stuck in your tissues. So mm-hmm. you don't know where it is or how much is there. So mm-hmm. their chelation thing is limited to the ability of what they could find in your blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they say, oh, you only have this much mercury. It's because mostly mercury is all stored in tissues. So mm-hmm. if you have mercury in your blood, that means you have a shit ton of mercury in your system. Right. Yeah. So. Then it's a matter of where in your system is it and then how concentrated it is to see if that's a priority to take out or maybe the lead is more important or maybe the fungus is more important or maybe mm. something else. So it's a pretty good system to identify, uh, prioritize, quantify, and then remediate mm. without like adding more shit to your system. So, And that's just layer one. Then there's layer there's five layers. So layer one is just the physical body. So layer two is like the energy body, the meridians and the chakras. This I figured out later. But that layer, I could muscle test that layer too and figure out what chakras are blocked. Mm. That trickles down to your physical layer. So if you have the first chakra blocked and let's able to open that up, it actually fixes a bunch of stuff in the physical layer that doesn't get weak anymore. Right. I found out. Then the third layer is into emotional layer. The fourth layer is your uh, perceptual layer, how you see things. Right. Belief systems, you know, uh, programming. 
And then this fifth layer is this universal truth layer. It's kind of like where all the truths exist, all infinite flow, ocean of flow. And then when you have a belief system, it's aligned with the truth, you get less flow. Mm. It creates fear-based emotions, which creates less flow. It creates meridian blocks, which creates less flow. And then your body gets drops of flow from this ocean avail- you know, available to it down that channel. And then the block, and then the drops you do have, you have the toxins that mm. come in and block you more. If you don't deal with that, you atrophy, develop disease, disease, yeah. disease. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea is to first reclaim the flow you already have, mm. but it's this process, yeah, this clinical approach, mm. and then open your pipes to getting more flow from up here. Mm. So that combo has been really effective. And then yeah. it, it, yeah, it gives you more of a like placebo is just. You're accessing more flow. Mm. You get rid of, quit your job, do this. You get rid of stress. You're more aligned with what you care about. You travel the world. You know, burn all your cash. All of a sudden, you have, your cancer goes away. Mm. It's because you access more flow, and you level up your flow, which push all the toxins and stuff off your system. Mm. Your body regenerated. Um, so placebo is just adding more flow to your system. You feel better for a moment in time because you have a placebo. Because even your belief and emotions adds more flow to your system. So. Mm. So to me, placebo is just adding more flow versus taking out the cause, mm. you know, and either one, they both work, just one's more sustainable than the other, so. Mm. Are you writing a book on this or a course? Yeah, a book. Yeah? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. You said 300 people have benefited from this information already. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, awesome. 300 people I've helped directly, but yeah. Yeah. Probably more. How, how soon would it be done? I'm, I'm oh, eager to check it out. Good question, man. That's uh. I don't know yet. Good question. I, mean, I have two books I've been working on. One's Hacking Fear. Mm-hmm. It's my 15 years research on the fear stuff. And then this is essentially Finding Flow, but I call it Chasing Hope. Mm. And yeah, so it's about the whole flowology, so to speak. So I call it. Yeah. I mean, more, <clears throat> most of the flow books that I've come across are very, very theoretical. It's not as tactile. And also, they don't think in frameworks. Yeah. Uh, even like Steam Fire or uh, Flow by Mihai Chicks and Mihai yeah. or. Uh, the rise of Superman or whatever these are all like anecdotal things but yeah. there's not a whole lot of like systematic way of thinking the way that you present it mental yeah. model yeah right uh, it, mental I am a mental model guy yeah I love mental models it allows yeah. me to be able to grasp right. what actually works right yeah yeah how do you like stealing fire I mean I like it I also like the way that it popularized the idea of flow yeah. and also popularized uh, psychedelics yeah and it opened my eyes actually from, for me personally like oh okay you know before stealing fire I probably wouldn't have experimented with uh, psychedelics yeah but since then and then a number of other interesting um, so I had an encounter with the Dalai Lama uh-huh. and that opened my eyes to this whole world of to the seeking of compassion and empathy cool. and then I had my ayahuasca experience and boom there was a whole my spiritual journey was yeah. that was the beginning of my spiritual journey yeah cool yeah. and uh, what was your encounter with Dalai Lama uh, it was he was in LA in a, in a very close proximity and um, I was very curious about what makes him him I different yeah is it is it age? Is it ethnicity? Is it uh, knowledge? But really, when I come to a conclusion, was just his way of being. Because mm-hmm. I could have easily said everything that he said, but 
the way of being he was just so kind and generous just he filled the entire stadium yeah and that entire space and just by the end of his talking I was um, like tearing up yeah like with no reason to do that Mm -hmm. I was just so moved by his way of being yeah and then it really got me curious to know what was the difference right and that was the my intention going to my ayahuasca ceremony oh cool so you did ayahuasca for the first time um, I actually since then have done ayahuasca for about 30 plus times 30 plus times wow okay <laughs> dude I'm an expert now so, and, and how are the four, like the last three compared to your first three are you still noticing the same mm. level of yeah so the way I looked at it is <clears throat> um, it's all about bridging the gap between the lower selves and the higher selves right. and from that end the gap will always be there there never will be at a point where uh, lower self will be completely overcome that's what so integrity always restoring integrity 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 so uh, every time I do it I I get to look where in my life am I not in line with my higher self Mm -hmm. so every time I do it it's a different issue that I look at so the first three times is some other essentially the outer layer things and then it get, just gets closer and closer to the universal truth as right. vocabulary yeah yeah, yeah. Too much. so um, that's not kind of been my path my path's been more around inquiry mm. and kind of like what you just said about how you encountered the Dalai Lama um, you were curious about what makes what's different about you and him mm-hmm. and so I spent as I mentioned 15 years researching fear mm-hmm. more of that now but um, when I started writing my book it's around that much and uh mm. And that, and I, you know, I question like, why am I afraid now? And what am I, what's going on in my head when I'm not afraid? Mm-hmm. And I kept looking for that delta, you know, mm-hmm. the difference, you know, and, and through that inquiry, I just came up, I kept unraveling more and more truths, what mm-hmm. I consider truths. And, um, that was how I was able to uncover these kind of fundamental principles around fear and what that is and, you know, and how to neutralize them mm-hmm. and then create a practice around that that helped me to first identify when I'm in a state of fear mm-hmm. uh, or when fear is active in me and then two figure out what's causing it you know and then three how to neutralize that cause and then four how to kind of re-perceive things so I don't generate the fear to, again later right to go through the process of create a new pattern yeah 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 mm-hmm. so so it's kind of like releasing the root assumptions that are holding, that are enabling those fears to regenerate mm. when they're tri- when the right environment or the right triggers are set up. So, so that's um, but all of that was through inquiry. I didn't do any kind of drugs recreationally. I didn't even drink. I, actually, there was a ten year period during this whole process where I didn't drink any alcohol, didn't eat any meat, uh, didn't never did any drugs or psychedelics or anything like that. Um, and it was just purely through curiosity. Mm. And experimenting, I jump out of planes. I swim with sharks. I do things to put myself in these, you know, in these circumstances where I would be, where typically I would, you know, feel fear or stress, you know, um, discomfort, you know, uh, and um, and then observe my thoughts, Mm. and then I'd journal them and I'd like track everything, Mm. and then as I started noticing patterns, I was able to. 
you know, kind of shifts in my thoughts in those moments mm. or ask myself questions in those moments of why am I feeling this way or what am I afraid of, you know, mm. and, and keep digging deep until I could move out of it. Or at the very least, just bring myself present and just bring myself present would pull any fear out of me in those moments. Mm. You know, so, so I was able to like figure out these three pillars of fear, you know, uh, time, you know, mm. you know, being fierce in the future, many times triggered by the past, mm-hmm. experienced in the present. So if I was able to pull myself from the future into the present, fear would, you know, go away. Mm-hmm. Um, second was attachment, mm-hmm. and it wasn't whether you had an attachment or not; it's the nature of the attachment. Mm-hmm. So I always, I mean, I came to the conclusion that attachments are actually healthy for us because that's how we develop relationships, and relationships are how we grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's with things or people or ideas or ideals, um, and but. If you have, if the attachment is struck is set up as something that's very rigid, then when the universal forces push on you and this person, place, thing, ideal you're attached to, creates stress in the system. Right? It's like a beam mm. holding you guys together, mm. and you're holding essentially you're holding that object in a position where you think it should be relative to you, and then all these forces keep pushing on you guys, and and then uh, eventually it might snap. And, right. Right. And the other version of it was what I call gravitational orbital attachment, where you let go. And the thing's still there, and as the universal forces push on you, it just rotates around you like a moon around a planet, like mm. in your orbit. And what's keeping it in place is your gravity. And the difference in the two was the first one I was like I'd be focused on the object, trying to control it and manage it relative to where I think it should be relative to me. Mm. And the second scenario, when I let go, I'm actually focused on myself, bettering myself, growing, you know intellectually, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, mm-hmm. and becoming a bigger being. And then um, and then the right things end up staying in my orbit and the wrong mm-hmm. things naturally gravitate away. So mm-hmm. so the, guy, the idea there was letting go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and then the third pillar I found was what I call, um, well, it's an attachment to a specific outcome. I call that an expectation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, having expectations I found were really, um, well, People have expectations, well, to proceed an expectation before you even have an expectation, you have to have a goal. Right? Right. So people have goals because they want to propel themselves in a direction they need to move forward, and that's, that's normal, that's healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need something to work towards, something to make you feel like you're progressing, otherwise your being kind of contracts. So if you don't have progress, you become, you know, you become stagnant, mm-hmm. and there's no flow. There. Right. So, so you need progress to create flow. So... Um, but then when they create an expectation, uh, they, the expectation is essentially a very specifically formed outcome of what they want based mm-hmm. on this goal. And the goal is actually based on an intention. So mm-hmm. if you go three layers deep, you go expectation, below that's a goal, below that's an intention. So right. problem is when you achieve it, when you achieve a goal, there's no real elation, you know, right. there's no real joy because you expected it. So, right. you know, but if you don't, there's a big, yeah, right. yeah, then it's just like, okay, check box and move mm-hmm. on. There's no mm-hmm. emotional like benefit to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you don't achieve it, then, you know, there's a chance of demoralization, disappointment, sadness, you know, you might end up not, motiv- not trying to keep going because, mm-hmm. you know, you have this really tight expectation. Um, but I found that if I switched that, my lens on that, and, and you need, you need something to move towards, right? Um, so I'm not counting expectations. I, I just, what I'm, what I'm, uh, what I discovered is that if I switched my lens on it to make that a preference, mm. then it releases a stress 
mm-hmm. from it of not achieving it. If you do achieve it, there is elation because you're like, oh, wow, it worked out. You know, mm-hmm. it happened like I was wanting to, but not expecting it to. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, it leaves rooms for that same goal to be served in other ways that you may not thought of. Mm-hmm. And and if you go even deeper, maybe the goal isn't even relevant anymore. Maybe the intention uh, is served in a different way mm-hmm. that this path is a dead end, mm-hmm. but it still gets addressed in another Mm. another whole you know series of events that you may never imagine mm. and I found myself that when you know I throw something out there as a potential you know like as a goal and then an expectation you know formed outcome of what that goal would look like because mm. um, it gives me direction but then I leave open space for other creative forces to come in and, and help optimize mm. you know that direction so so just going from expectation and preference fear goes away mm. so I found that one of those three things these three pillars all three have to be activated for, for fear to exist all three all three you have to be in the future you have to have a rigid attachment and you have to have an expectation if you mm. take any one of those three down any of those three pillars down the, the table fear goes away falls mm. so you don't have the fear goes away so if you either bring yourself present mm. you know which is more of an immediate thing mm. that's like a short short term thing you could do mm. can't be present all the time I mean you should try but it's a good practice but usually most people have to you know, project and mm. plan and all that stuff. Or you can change the nature of attachment, mm. you know, from rigid to uh, orbital, so I call mm. it. Or you could change your expectation to a preference. Mm. So um, if you do any of those three things, fear tends to go away. Mm. Yeah. And then you have this issue like, well, that's a follow up question. Okay, but sure. Do you mind if I send? So I really love the way that you articulated um, from expectation to preference. Mm -hmm. Because that's very, it's a really useful mental tool. Because when you have expectations, it's easy for upsets. It doesn't go the way exactly the way I want it to go. But preference allows for room for for new possibilities. Mm -hmm. It's a probabilistic outcome. Right? So, but I do want to follow up with you about the gravitational force. I also love that. Uh, mental image as well. So how do you uh, increase your gravitational force? What kind of tactical daily disciplines that you do as a way to increase your gravitational force? I mean, there are many different things for different people. Um, You know, meditation is a really good way for me to... Any specific type of meditation? I just have my own practice that kind of worked for me, like Mine tends to be no mind based, meaning I don't, I don't have lead meditations. I just kind of sit there and breathe, mm-hmm. and I breathe into silence, and and I just allow my mind to kind of simmer, and then mm-hmm. essentially settle, and then allow energy to kind of bubble up from that. So, mm-hmm. so I just try to experiment with different breathing patterns. Usually three, inhale, three hold, three exhale, three three three. Yeah, the three mm-hmm. three three or five five five. You know, mm-hmm. equal parts. Mm-hmm. works for me sometimes people do a box three 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 or mm-hmm. you know they hold exhale for three I tend to find like the inhale hold exhale with a pause and then you know that that pattern works well for me mm. um, but you know it changes too so mm. um, sometimes I'll have longer exhales mm. to relax my system or if I'm too amped up mm. you know or if I need more energy I'll longer inhales mm. to settle my body and you know, my mm. body feels out of whack or tight then I'll do deeper inhales mm. So, I think um, 
you know, that's one one tool. You know, nature is a great tool. You know, I think inquiry is my biggest. Like, just being curious about what am I interested in, what am I curious about, what am I feeling, why am I feeling that way? Mm-hmm. You know, fear was gave me something specifically to solve for. Mm-hmm. You know, but then it started, you know, solving for. Once I figured that out, I started solving for um, flow. Like, oh, how do I access more? Mm-hmm. You know, and then flow led me to this concept of. Uh, that there are these universal truths mm. that I'm here to experience. When I experience the truth or get the aha moment, mm-hmm. um, the epiphany, you know, then I pop one of these truth bubbles mm-hmm. and these truth bubbles have flow in it and that flow falls into and increases my baseline. Like my 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 baseline pool of flow goes up. You know? When you discover these truth bubbles. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And these truth bubbles are like these aha moments. You know, you get mm-hmm. these aha and you discover, oh my gosh, that that's you know you pop the whether it's a little aha or a big aha they all have flow in it mm. and once you have these aha moments once you pop a truth bubble you mm. don't go back mm. you own that you own that flow you can't unknow it you cannot unknow it exactly yeah, yeah. And, and that means you can't unflow it so mm. the flow you own that flow forever mm. so um so then you just keep leveling up your baseline so oh interesting so you don't believe in entropy where if you don't maintain it it would degrade over time not not truth. Mm. Once you know truth, you know mm. truth. Mm. Yeah, you know there are other things that degrade over time mm. if you don't maintain it, like your body and your mind and things like that. But mm. truth stay. Mm. So it's um, yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's interesting. Yeah. So what, okay. define truth, and where do you find your truth? Where do you pop your truth bubbles, or how do you do that? Well, different truth. Like there are various types of truths there's mm-hmm. my truth mm-hmm. which is my truth based on my limited perception and mm-hmm. experience and information I have mm-hmm. then there's a collective truth which is a truth based on a mutual agreement by many people mm-hmm. like this is wrong and this is right mm-hmm. you know um, killing somebody is wrong you know, the, you know you have a collective group of people say that's wrong and then you might have another collective group of people saying Oh, that's that's okay. We're in war, mm-hmm. you know. So, so there's collective truths, and and then there's what I call universal truths. There's a universal truth where it doesn't matter what you are or what collection of people, what society, what race, what what being even you are, mm-hmm. whether you're an animal or a human or a plant or even a rock, you know, um, that this truth holds true. It's fundamental. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, it's only like the laws of physics. There's the laws that, you know, it's kind of like its own set of laws, mm-hmm. and uh, which are not around material things. It's around the stuff beyond material things, right? The metaphysical things, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, the universal truth might be, you know, uh, I'll give you, I mean, it's kind of hard because they tend to be triggered by circumstances and they tend to be discovered through a circumstance, but then when you filter out the circumstance, the truth still holds. Yes. You know, so, uh, a, let me think of an example. You know, like a lot of times I find, you know, when I feel like someone is, you know, like when I was younger, like, oh, someone mistreated me, you know, or um, this, or an ex-girlfriend had, you know, you know, gave me a hard time about something, you know, and I get angry about it and I react to her or him or, whoever the person is and um, and then a universal truth that I discovered after doing going processing a lot of these things is it always came back to me and it was my misperception 
mm. that was causing the anger. A misperception. Yeah, so there's a fear. So if I was angry, that means I was in a state of fear. Mm. And then if I'm in a state of fear, why am I, you know, I do the, my whys, I call my five whys to, you know, kind of dig deeper into what's causing the fear. And I find these assumptions and it was always my perspective. It always looped back. You know, I start by blaming the other person. Mm-hmm. And then over time, it would kind of loop back to, well, why am I blaming the other person and so on and so forth until I realized, oh, well, I want to feel this way and I'm not getting this. And then until it's always looped back to me realizing, oh, I'm the only one that's preventing myself from moving forward or protecting myself from moving forward, mm-hmm. you know, because I have some old program that feels like I need protection when it's no longer relevant. And then once I realize that, all that stuff goes away. Mm-hmm. And the person still might be yelling at me. But I'm not reacting anymore. I'm, mm. I'm actually flipped from reaction to responding and understanding and compassion. Mm. And like, oh my gosh, this person's in pain or something. How can I help? So it just flips my attitude. Mm. Um, you so do that in the moment. After yeah. a while, after a while, you realize that. You, I mean, you just get better at it. It's a practice. Mm. Everything's a practice, right? Life is a practice. Mm. So, uh, so yeah, I could do that moment. So someone's yelling at me uh, for my first, my first react, my first you know thought would be hell no, you know, you're wrong type of thing. And I go, wait a minute. And like, why am I feeling stressed? Okay, pause. Let me understand the person better. And then when you do that more and more, you just go straight to that. That's your default. Mm. Your default is, oh, why are, and you start asking, why are they feeling that way? Mm. And then you pull the judgment out. You pull the assumptions out and you go into a state of pure understanding. And and then when you go into a state of understanding, you go into a state of compassion. And then the compassion, you know, helps you see things clearly. Mm. The, you know, the key to life I found is not taking things personally, right? So yeah. the minute you take things personally, that means you're in a state of fear. So yeah. if you're in a state of trust, which is the opposite of fear, right. um, that's a state. That's another state of another word for state of trust is a state of awareness. Mm. So the more aware you are, the more trust and trust you are. And awareness means understanding mm. and observing. So to be aware, you have to observe and understand. So the more you observe, the more you understand. The more aware you are, the more aware you are, the more you can resolve things mm. or the more control you actually have over the situation than you do when you're reacting. So, mm. so, um, so that's like an example of universal truth. Like I discovered these things like, Oh wow, it's never, it's, it's never about me. Mm. It's always about something else. Mm. I just happen to be there. Right. You know, <clears throat> it's easy to say though, intellectually. Yeah. Um, it gets a little harder or much harder when it's your loved ones, people that's closest to you, and they they have certain their own stuff going on, right. their own programming, um, interacting with my programming, mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden it's programming on programming, right? Um, but yeah, I really love the way that. But the key, but the thing you said is it's all programming though, mm-hmm. right? It's their programming, your programming, means it's not you mm-hmm. or them, right? right. So when you're what I found is when you're in a state of fear, you're acting from a state of programming. Mm-hmm. When you're in a state of trust, you're acting from a state of an awareness, which is no longer programming because you can't be in a program when you're trying to understand. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, so, so, so I guess the question would be is like in that moment, because I'm triggered as well, yeah. right? I'm in my own process yeah. of being in fear, angry, whatever it may yeah, be, yeah. so whatever it's a kind of reaction. And my commitment is to be in the presence of love, right? right? And then, to be received with love as well. So to interrupt that programming, the automatic response is the challenging part. So I'm aware of it, mm-hmm. but now how do I 
stop the train from leaving the station? Right. So that's that's a good question. So I mean, well, the hardest part is being aware of it, like no mm-hmm. recognizing you're in a state of fear. So you know, the first thing I suggest to people is like, if you feel any kind of stress or discomfort mentally, emotionally, even physically, mm-hmm. um, physically being like you feel pains or you know, versus like you know a brick hitting you in the head from mm-hmm. falling from some building, but uh, um, then you're in a state of fear. Right. So if there's any kind of stress on your system, mentally, emotionally, or physically, you know, somatically, I guess, Mm. then you're in a state of fear. So once you know your state of fear, then my first go-to is like, okay, there's something wrong with me and how I'm perceiving this, Mm. not the other person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That might be true. There might be something wrong how they're perceiving it. But from my, what I need to focus on is what am I misperceiving? Yeah. Right. It's a very powerful place to come from that space. Yeah, well, then, because then you're not a victim of someone else, right? You're not yeah. in control. Yeah, exactly. You're significantly more controlled because you can't do anything as a victim. Mm-hmm. It's very little, very little leverage you have. You're like at the end of a seesaw mm-hmm. versus at the center, mm-hmm. where you, yeah, full, you know, full leverage, right? Mm-hmm. So you have very little leverage at the end of a seesaw to, you know, you're at the mercy mm-hmm. of everything else. So, so um, the idea of something's wrong with me so what am I misperceiving not something's wrong with me as a being mm-hmm. but something's wrong with the way I'm perceiving something right. and I'm missing information or there's a program that's been there that doesn't belong there anymore mm-hmm. you know that's triggering this in me from my past so um, then I just start asking myself why am I feeling this way or I do one of two things if I'm in the moment with somebody in an argument I start asking them questions of why they're feeling this way mm-hmm. And I move into uh, a mindset of trying to understand them. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like if you're, I don't know, I'm an engineer by trade, right? I build bridges and roads and airports mm-hmm. and transportation type infrastructure is what I grew up doing. And, you know, if a bridge isn't working, I don't blame the bridge. Mm-hmm. You know, I figure out what, 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 what's going on. Why, try to understand why it isn't working. Mm-hmm. You know, did I miscalculate something? Did I, you know, what is causing you know, the failure in the bridge or whatever it is. So, so same with the person. Uh, If the person's not working, you try to understand why Mm -hmm. working means they're in a state of fear. They're freaking out or angry or upset or sad or depressed or whatever. You just try to understand them. And then you ask enough questions, um, you get more data and the more data you have, the more understanding you have about yourself because then you find the things that you're reacting to. Mm -hmm. You know, so... If I'm not there, if I'm not in the moment with somebody, then I just ask myself these five lies. Like, well, why am I feeling that way? Mm-hmm. You know, why am I? And then if I, you know, figure that out, then I'm like, why am I feeling that? Or why am I? You know, I keep going down until I figure out some rude assumption of okay, I'm feeling disrespected. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like well, when, once I figure out some one of those rude things, then um, I'll then kind of regress myself. Well, when did I first feel? disrespected mm. and I keep regressing myself to understand when that first happened and once I could discover that then I try to get more data I try to move myself in that state at that time and then try to get data around that and see well what else was happening at that point in time because in that moment in time when I was 10 years old I'm sure I missed a bunch of things you know mm. so I try to get more data now from that point of view and over time as I collect more data I end up numbing that charge Mm. I mean that emotional charge around being disrespected and then eventually I'll have an aha moment I was like oh 
it wasn't me, it was them, or something, something like that. Something that kind of fills in all the blanks and kind of finishes the sphere. Mm-hmm. You know, fills in the sphere around that one point of view and um, gives me a 360 perspective. And then, and then once that charge is there, it's no longer a program. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a memory. So it moves from a charge state to a completely neutralized data set. You know, mm-hmm. and um, and then anything that's connected to that, you know, that, you know, linked to that, you know, we call them these, these uh, chains, right? Mm-hmm. Chains of fear that, you know, this magnetizes and attracts another situation like that. And if it keeps doing that until you figure it out, mm-hmm. then all those chains get, you know, usually everything in that chain gets neutralized as well, including the moment you're in. So it goes back to it's a practice. Yeah. You know, it does, like, the more you do it, and I did it for, you know, when it, as I was figuring this over a period of 15 years, I kept chiseling away at this and figuring out more and kept doing it and doing it and shed so much of my programming and fears around it. And as I shed more stuff, I saw other things so much more clearly because mm. my filters were being cleared up. Right. And, uh, all that crud. Yeah, the stuff in the way mm-hmm. that prevents you from seeing some of these truths. Mm-hmm. You know, the truths are right there, they're always present. It's just we just end up we just got to take the stuff out of the way stuff that's in the way of us seeing or experiencing those things right so um so yeah so it became really after after you get a few of these things you're like it becomes fun it becomes a game mm. then you're like then you look for the next time you're triggered so on that note do you conscientiously put yourself in more and more challenging situations whether it be physically challenging or emotionally challenging intellectually challenging as a way to stretch your comfort zone yeah, I did in the beginning because it helped me observe things, and then I, um, and now I just feel like when I'm trying to work towards, you know, I just you keep upping your game, I guess you keep upping your ante, and then you find yourself triggered or you know find challenges and hurdles you come up with, and you know usually most of them have to do with people, you mm-hmm. know, and. Um, so you put yourself in new situations. You know, there's new relationships or new businesses or new creative, you know, endeavors or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're a musician, you play in small venues and you say, okay, well, I've done that enough. Let me try a bigger venue. That's a new set of challenges, you know, then a bigger one. Or now let me try something on television or whatever. So let me try composing a score for a film. So you keep adding challenges to expand your experience set and diversity. Um, so yeah, so over consciously and subconsciously, I keep adding. Once I feel like I've resolved a challenge, I try to you know I'll somehow naturally find a new one, mm. you know. And um, and, and the question is like, why do we do this? Um, it's because we're pers- na- by nature as a human being, uh, we're always pursuing higher degrees of freedom, mm-hmm. and as we find another degree of freedom. Yeah, and every truth we experience moves us up the freedom ladder. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, and and this is true individually and collectively, right? I mean, you see wars fought or revolutions take place because people, by nature, do not like to be contained, and they can be contained for so, so you know a certain amount of period. They could extend that based on creating systems and stuff, but inevitably, if someone's freedom is restricted without reason or beyond reason, then there will be some kind of response to that. It's just in our nature, you know, consciously and subconsciously. And uh, 
center programming. And um, so we are naturally doing that. We're always pursuing higher degrees of freedom. So there's a correlation to that. The higher, the more freedom you access, the more flow you have access to. Mm-hmm. So, so to pursue more freedom is to pursue more flow. And flow is love, so you're actually pursuing more love. So it's, um, and then the more freedom you're accessing, you know, the less fear you have. So there's correlation there too. So I gotta, I gotta express that properly. So the more trust you have, the less fear you have. They're counter forces. The more fear you have, the less trust you have. Mm-hmm. So you can have freedom, but if you have free, but you know, there are things that go along with trust. There's awareness that goes along with trust and also responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, um, the more freedom you have that you earn, that you work towards and gain, then the more responsibility you have that goes along with it, mm. right? So, like as a baby, you know, we 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 need boundaries, and, we, and fear helps create boundaries so we could optimize our energy within this that space. So, if there's nothing, fear has a purpose to it, and it's creating friction to help us harness and focus our energy to understanding and optimizing that level, so to speak. And you know, you see this as a baby. At first, you're a baby, you're in a crib, you know, and that's the level of your freedom is that crib, right? Mm-hmm. Now, once you get comfortable moving around and all that stuff, then, you you know, they might get you a bigger crib, you know, and then eventually you're now in a bed, you know, with the parents, you know, and then eventually you're in your own bed and then you're in your own room and you have your, you know, then you can do what you want in the home, you know, and then eventually let you outside on your own, you know, without being watched. So you're just expanding your, in this case, physical boundaries. Once you have control and mastery of, the boundary within that you have, then you, you know, then you release those boundaries and set new boundaries so you can expand. Because mm-hmm. if you just have no boundaries, then your energy and focus gets completely diffused. Right. Right. So you never end up mastering and growing and connecting. Right. So, so you'll level up, you'll gain. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. So the idea is to create boundaries to learn and focus your energy to understand and master that set of circumstances, and then keep expanding your boundaries. And then, you know, keep doing that. The problem comes in is when we never reset our boundaries. And a lot of people get stuck mm-hmm. in old boundaries, whether it's through religion or institutional or parental programming or, you know, you know, society or community, whatever. And they apply old boundary rules to systems that where those boundaries aren't relevant mm-hmm. anymore. So those fears are no longer relevant. You know, because you're in a different setup and and or a different set of circumstances, so catching those things and erasing those boundaries is really important. And then, once again, creating new boundaries is just as important. So mm-hmm. you, you have enough of a protected space to master and not get distracted. So on that note, how do you pick the right sized new project, new scope, new boundary? Yeah. So well, you know, Stephen Kotler talked about and. Right, Superman. He's like the optimal state of flow is when your your challenge to skill ratio, your challenge is four percent higher than your skill ability. Mm-hmm. So it keeps you, um, you know, because if your challenge is, if you don't have a challenge, then you get bored. If it's too challenging, you get you give up. So four percent is the optimal thing to keep in this state of where you feel connected, everything's effortless, and so on and so forth. So, so that's for flow. But if you need a plan, you just have to kind of feel it out like say okay I want to go from you know whether it's income you could go from X to Y mm-hmm. you know and sometimes I mean if you perceive things properly 
those boundaries aren't even necessary because it's all human constructs. You know, mm-hmm. you just pick what you want and it happens. Sure. So the yeah, boundaries in other circumstances. So sure. So after a while, you realize you don't need boundaries. <laughs> so it's um, okay. Actually, pause on that point. Yeah. I wanted you to uh, unpack that a little bit more because one, if it, if I just Google your name, there's a Wikipedia page mm-hmm. about you, right? You are an entrepreneur, you're a hedge fund manager, you are a very accomplished pianist, you produce a, a graphic novel. Wow, what may I say? How does this guy do it all? Was there a pivotal moment in your life where you realized that you can do it all? And how did you come to become this polymath, let me say? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it was when I was researching fear, and when I discover that fear, first of all, is not necessary. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's mostly programmed. You know, there's instinctual stuff. You know, that's there when your flight or flight kicks in to keep you alive. But most of it's perceived. It's perceived, right? It's uh, well, fear is all perceived. But it, but you know, in certain cases, even in those fight or flight moments, awareness is way more powerful than fear, right? So, um, but you know. Until people develop an awareness, that level of awareness, then fear serves a purpose. So, so when I was researching fear, I kept shedding myself, shedding all these fears that were no longer serving me, and I started seeing things more clearly, what how things can be and should be, and what they really are by its nature, and what we have to unwind in ourselves, unprogram. I realized that we're limitless beings, right? That we could do anything, and and we make it so obvious, but it's not. It's not obvious when you have all the programming because we're programmed to focus on one thing and you can only do this and you can only make so much money and then you get put into a machine mm. and when you get put in the machine then all you see is your your boundaries. Mm. You know, you don't see that. So, you know, traveling was a good thing when I started seeing and correlating other lifestyles. It worked in different industries. I started off in, as an engineer, civil engineer working in my family business and then I went into tech and then I went into VR and learning and a startup doing virtual reality for military training and simulation systems and mm-hmm. that was really interesting because I I learned how people learned mm-hmm. and that helped me figure out how to optimize learning mm-hmm. and then I spent you know during that time I was chasing fear and um, trying to figure that out and once I was able to figure out how to remove fears then I was like oh gosh I could try this and if there's no fear then you have a significantly better chance of succeeding or mm-hmm. or um you know, a, delivering something interesting. Yeah. There's a quote that goes, uh, if you knew you couldn't fail, what would you want to do? What would you want to accomplish? Right. Right. So. And then there's this piece, this other piece of me is like, my life design is not around, I mean, this is a choice I made, I guess, somewhere along the way. I don't remember when and how, but I guess what I want to get out of this life is to experience as much as possible. Mm. Um and it's, so my life is centered around gaining novel experiences that I find interesting and I think would be something that's helpful to others, you know, whether it's humanity as a large or my family or my loved ones, you know. Or doing the podcast interview. Yeah, or, or this podcast interview, exactly. So, um, so I actually pursue experiences. It's kind of my design. And, this, you know, other people pursue mastery in a subject or, you know, in a, whether it's mastery in a, area of business or an industry or an art form or whatever else uh, mine was to experience all those and find what connects them all mm. and um, so I so I've 
actually I've been in, involved in so many different, I don't know, professions is the right word because they're not all professions, but you know, ranging from engineering to defense stuff to VR and learning, accelerated learning. I was a professor. I was a, you know, I taught at Montessori school. I um, had, uh, you know, I, I was the creative director for the New York City uh, 2012 Olympic Cultural Olympic campaign when they're going for the 2012 Olympics. So I dealt wow. with 104 countries and all their cultural ministries, and they're feeding me all their different art forms or their artists in these various categories of putting together a large scale production like that. Um, so I could produce some films, um, produce music, pianist, you know, and EDM. I did have a whole EDM album out there uh, yeah. under my, my name called Renaissance. Um, you know, to what I'm doing now, which is in the water and blockchain and crypto and and spent a lot of time working in that field for the last six, seven years and then um, doing global, you know, organizing global meditations. So, so I had like a really weird, vast array of different things I've done, but what's interesting is there's so many patterns in all of them and a lot of them, 80% of them are all handled the same way. Mm. How so? Yeah, unpack that for us, please. Well, I mean, first of all, they have to have a curiosity you know so if you have a curiosity you figure out all the nuances you know every kind of profession or industry has the hierarchy you know whether it's small or big doesn't matter and they have a social you know social structure to it and you know of what you know who is the most respected and the most knowledgeable and the most successful what they define as successful for that category and um and then there's a value system associated with it Mm-hmm. you know like what they value like in entertainment you know there are different things that are valued than technology you know like entertainment is relationships and mm-hmm. how many followers you have and mm-hmm. you know those types of things where in technology it's you know like your engineering skill mm-hmm. you know or your uh, or your ability to you know build a company you know or something like that and in civil engineering it's different it's you know it's your golf ability, your, your skill in golf. <laughs> like, really? Yeah, because you're dealing with government, you know, oh. um, you know, bureaucrats that control big budgets, you know, um, that are there to you know protect the public's money and and pay you know hire you know people to to build a road or whatever and make sure it's done correctly. Huh. Um, and the best conversations happen over a golf course, and they all love to play golf, at least in Florida. So. Yeah. Uh, Florida has a good golf course. So, um, you know, so the good, the great, the people that are great golfers tend to be revered more and, mm. you know, and people who are on the golf field more tend to get more projects because they have more social bonding that takes place. Interesting. So if you're not playing golf, then you're at a disadvantage. You know, so, so there's value sets and things like that that are across every industry. New York is finance and media, right? If you're, you're either working for an investment bank, you're very revered if you're, or some, you know, large corporations very institutional focused and um, you know it has entrepreneurialness also but it's not as strongly supported as it is on the west coast I found mm. um, Florida is mainly like real estate development mm. and construction and whatnot because you have so many people moving down to Florida that mm. they keep building mm. you know they have to keep building roads and building houses and things like that so that and tourism so those are like the master industries there mm. you know um so it's interesting when you start looking at the patterns of different cities and different communities and what, you know, what, what is the foundation, the economic foundation for them that mm-hmm. tends to be what, um, 
with all the value sets and other things start mm-hmm. to rotate around. Now, if you go to like the Eastern, you know, the Eastern world, like in India, they're, they're I mean, India is becoming more Westernized. Mm-hmm. But before that, there's a whole value set around spirituality and, you know, religion and, um, and their value set was a very opposite of materialism at one point. You know, the, in, in the Western materialistic society, the more assets you have, the more wealth you have, the more revered you are. Mm. Right? The higher up the chain you are, the more respected yeah. you are, right? Forbes magazine cover. Right. Yeah, all that. Yeah, so, and even in small communities, if you, uh, if you made a lot of money, you know, a small community could be like, you know, you have $500,000 and that's your, your big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, or in San Francisco, that, you know, that gets you one or two engineers. <laughs> it does, it's that, you know, so it's a different scale, right? Mm-hmm. So it's all relative. Um, but in the Eastern culture, it's not about what you have. It's actually the opposite. Like the more you've let, get, you've let go or given up, and you know, like the sages that have been meditating in the mountains by themselves for the last three years are more revered than you know the guy that's running a business in a town. Mm. You know, because that person actually has less. He's given up less. So this is almost a counterculture approach, which is really interesting. I found that to be like refreshing in some ways where you say okay the less i have and the more i focus on my my inner space so to speak versus the external about mm-hmm. you know external things then the more revered i have but you know but a lot of those people actually would pursue reverence through that path mm-hmm. but it's still they're pursuing reverence right mm-hmm. so there's still an ego component to it mm-hmm. so there are some interesting blend there where i found i found you know there's a documentary called Wild Wild Country with mm-hmm. about uh, Bhagwan Rajneesh or Osho, and he had a really cool approach. And you know, you know, I actually have a lot of respect for Osho because, um, you know, I, I don't, you know, when you see the documentary, they paint a great picture of him, but he wasn't even in most of those incidences. Is that other woman uh, that was Sheila that was orchestrating a lot of that? He was kind of in a battle of silence behind the scenes for a while, and. Um, but he said, I want to try a new experiment. You know, he said, the Western man is half man because they're very materialistic, but they've given up, they, they've forsaken spirituality. The Eastern man is very spiritual, but they've forsaken materialism. Mm-hmm. So let's try a new experiment. Let's create a full man that's a materialistic spiritualist mm-hmm. <laughs> and bring materialism and spirituality together. Mm-hmm. And that was what he set out to do and, and exemplify. Did he, did he achieve it? Well, he had... Dozens of Rolls Royces, but still spoke truth, like it was just flowing out of his mouth like waterfalls. If you actually read any of his books and stuff, it's like pure truth. It's, it's just, beautiful, yeah. It's gorgeous. I've, yeah, I it's read like, some of his stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. And like high vibration stuff. High vibrational stuff, and he has so much. Pre- I mean, this guy had so much presence. If you strip away all the other stuff that happened, he had so much presence that he show like he inspired a whole bunch of people to build a city hmm. for him. Like literally from scratch. I mean, when they moved to Oregon, they, it was they had to blast mountains down or you know rock down to create enough land, you know, enough flatland to build a city and farms and all that stuff to be completely self-sustainable. Wow! And they just cared about housing their community. I think when they started getting harassed by the outside, who felt you know who were in a state of fear, like what are these guys doing here? Why are they all dressed in red and whatever else? You know, then you know they're they're protecting themselves. In most cases, you know, at least in the beginning, and you know, they didn't start arming themselves until they uh, their hotel had a, somebody bombed their hotel. Oh man! Right. So everything was in response to protecting their community. 
mm. which anyone would do, mm. you know, if you, and, um, and at a certain point they're like, it got out of hand, but, but you know, they're pushed to it. it was, so the, the idea for one guy that that much presence and he had no, he really had no money, he had nothing. He, all he had was his truth that he spoke, which were eventually converted into books mm. to create that big of a draw. It's really interesting. That's powerful. Yeah, and and it wasn't just Oregon; it was all over the world. There are ashrams that, that became, you know, dozens, you know, dozens and dozens of cities started forming ashrams around his teachings and his books and his truths. Hmm. So, what, what do you think about his experiment? Because they're in the spiritual community, mm-hmm. seems to look down on money. Money is evil, bad, or the pursuit of money, the love right. of money is bad. And that's what he said. He said, that, you know, the spiritualists forsake materialism, yeah. and the materialists forsake spiritualism. Yeah. So they're both half full. Mm. Yeah, I found that really intriguing. I, I, I tend to agree with them. I'm like, it's got to be a way where you know you could use where both can serve and integrate. Both can be integrated mm. in a way where you know neither are you know where they both actually help enhance mm. one's being. I mean, my mental model is this: money is nothing but fuel, and energy, vibration, mm-hmm. and same thing with universal truth. It's, right. It has its own vibration. So I don't see any kind of conflict with it whatsoever. Well, money is just energy exchange, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just exchanging energy. That's that's uh, fundamentally is what it is. But then once again, it depends on your culture. Mm. It, so money is like water; it takes on the shape of the container, mm. and the container is the culture. Ah. So if the culture is rever- revering those who have more money and using that money for getting more things, bigger houses, bigger planes, this and that. Mm. Then, and there's creating a divide. You know, as you know, between people who don't have it or can't get those things, and that's the culture. Then, then that's where money starts becoming used in a way that's not, you know, that that could cause division and problems. And you know, that's where money becomes evil, right? Because mm-hmm. then you're taking money away from certain people to you know to grow something that doesn't need any more growth without you know by putting other people in harms you know in, in a harmful state. So. Now that money is saying, okay, at, you know, I'm just throwing examples out there, but sure. if the money is being used in a way to support the whole, mm. you know, not just a few, you know, then, then it's being used in a positive way. Mm. And then money is facilitating a growth of a society, a civilization. Mm. And it's an amplifier. It's an amplifier. Mm. Well, it's an amplifier just depend, in either case. Mm. It just depends on if it, is it used... What, what, well, it depends on what the cultural container is. Mm. If the cultural container is designed and like, like Japan is a very interesting place, right? So they're, you know, their, um, their culture that was developed has a long-term perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So they look at generations mm-hmm. and the culture is based on their honor. You know, they have an honor code and honor system, you know, their level of integrity is extremely high. Mm-hmm. Um, because their culture defines that as a higher priority than how much wealth you have. Like I remember hearing a story. My friend just told me they're in Tokyo, and he was just reminiscing on how impressed he was by the integrity of the Japanese people. He said, "You know, they ran from one train to another, um, and noticed his daughter's shoe fell off in the other train, and a guy ran um, into the door of the train they just got into." Uh, as his closing with their daughter's shoe. And even though he wasn't going in that direction, 
Mm. He found the shoe, ran it to them to, just to give it to them. And now he had to wait 30 minutes to go in the wrong direction to get on another train to oh, go wow. 30 minutes in the back, back to the, where he started and then back to where he tried to get to. Wow. So just level of integrity of the people were really, you know, he was really impressed by. Yeah. And I found, that, I found that with Japanese people in general when you know, I've engaged with them in business or whatever else is their, uh, you know, their honor code is very strong. You know, mm-hmm. and, um, and culturally, that's more revered than a lot of the other things that we revere in the Western society. Where here, it's not the case. You know, that's not, we don't have that level of integrity or, or um, honor. You know, it's more independent. Uh, everyone's on their own kind of mentality. Now, in India, you have a nuclear family, which is a very opposite scenario. Where we work, in, we work as a group or a team, for better or worse. It's... Uh, you know, they both have their, everything has their pros and cons, but we work, you know, as a family unit, you know, because there you have to work together to survive, you know, because otherwise you starve. Mm. Here, there's enough foundational wealth that you could actually work individually and still survive, mm. you know. Um, but then it creates this, you know, fierce independence mm. where you forget to, you know, work in a collective as a team unless mm. you're paid to, mm. you know, versus and the nature of a family or something like that. Mm. You know, the number one thing parents here says, I can't wait for my kids to go to high school because I'm free, mm. you know, or college, you know, right. when they're off to college, then they're like waiting for the day that after, you know, the, after they hit their teenage years, <laughs> they're waiting for the day they're out of the house. Right. Where in India, it's so interesting because, you know, when they, you know, forget graduating from college or whatever, you know, when they get married, the tendency is for them to still live at home because right. now they're added to the family. They just right. added a member to the family and they That's still right. work as units. So, so even when they're married, they're living at home until they start having their own kids and then they move out, right? You know, into their own home to expand their family. Yeah. So, so it's not they're they're actually don't want their members to leave right. the home abode, so to speak, because it's uh, they feel more power when they're together. So, cultural containers, cultural mm-hmm. containers, money is the fuel or the water of cultural containers and the catalyst. So it's, if you want to, if you, if one wants to, I guess, redefine the definition of money or the value set of money, Mm. they do that by redefining the value set of the culture. Mm. And the money just flows into the new container. Interesting. So say that, say that a little bit more. And also I wanted to, um, because your the name of your hedge fund is Flow Capital, mm-hmm. so say a little bit more about that, like that extract that idea a little bit more. Yeah, so I mean, if you think of everything as flow, right? Mm-hmm. Um, movement is flow, so money is flow. It's you know it's energy flowing in the you know the direction you send it to it creates exchange. Um, you know, capital is flow, right? So I you know all my all my things have some kind of flow name to it I have Flow Capital I have Flow Labs which is my incubator for my technology companies um, Flow my show it's called Flow the Show mm-hmm. that was my yoga mixed with Cirque du Soleil show to my piano concert my Flow piano sound baths or my sound baths to help induce flow in people uh, while they're laying down meditating while I play for an hour um, so I tend to pull flow it seems to be like a central theme in my life you know my books that I'm writing is on flow and how that works the mechanics of it um so, yeah, so I think, so I found that, I don't know, for some reason flows tended to be, become a central theme. And, you know, water is a very, you know, has a strong connotation of flow, right? So, um, I think the, 
the whole idea of how flow is the life force that connects everything and everyone. Um, what's more interesting than that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like the mechanics, from an engineer's perspective, how does that work? Like, that's an interesting thing to figure out. Mm. That's an interesting uh, thing to discover and uncover and and uh, even codify to some degree mm. uh, the mechanics of how life force works mm. and how can it be harnessed and how can it be leveraged and used to better society, better mm. individuals, better humanity, better not just humanity as a species, but better all species. You know, so. Um, but is that the root of everything? Is that the flow is is flow the root of everything? Well, I define flow as life force. Mm-hmm. So, um, life force has to move for it to be a force. Mm-hmm. If it's not moving, it's not force. So, therefore, it's flowing. So, flow and life force to me is synonymous. You know, when people talk about flow state, that's a state when you're having access to a lot of life force, mm. right? So, a state of flow is a state when you have a lot of flow, which is a lot of life force. Mm. So, that's how I've been. That's how I've been defining it and kind of using the word flow. Um, yeah, so so I think at the root of all things is this force this that binds and connects everything. Mm-hmm. And also is the power source of what keeps everything working and going and moving and alive. And mm-hmm. you know, and then when you're in a state of fear, you're contracting your pipe to accessing more of the life force. Mm-hmm. And when you're in a state of trust, you're expanding your pipe, so you're getting more of it. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, so understanding even that fundamental mechanic was really helpful for me to say, wow, so the more trust and the more life force I'm getting, the more flow I'm getting, that for my body regenerates faster. Mm. Um, I have more clarity, so I have better brain processing abilities, so I can make better decisions. You know, it all it all connects as far as how the mechanics work. So there's this really interesting in my head, at least I haven't codified or written it all down yet. But there's this really large framework of how all these things work and interact and push and pull off each other mm. these knobs and levers you know that can be used to really tap into not just our you know superhuman abilities so to speak or, or fully human abilities but um, even our purpose mm. so like what are we doing here right you know what are we doing here here to discover in my where I'm at now with this is we're really here to discover the universal truths. Mm. And we need these bodies and these environments to do that because we need something, we need friction mm. to push us to the point where we could, you know, come across and pop those truth bubbles. Mm. And it's a game. You know, so it takes flow to get flow, like it takes money to make money, right? Mm. And if money is flow, you can see how they're correlated. But um, it's, you know, you pop a bubble you get these truths and I would say there's probably let's pick a number there's 6,000 some hundred universal truths that we're here to experience sure right and you you can't under, you can't intellectualize know them you can know of them and you know them but you don't really know them until you experience it mm-hmm. so I could tell you what they are like I told you but until you experience it it doesn't have the same effect you don't pop it until you experience it right so it's it's it's, uh, it's uh, knowledge experience and then embodiment right right that's the trajectory Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you experience it, it's you gain that flow, and the more flow you get, the more of these truth bubbles you get, these truths you can experience, until you are so, until you've experienced all the truths, for example, then your body has so much flow that it, had, it cannot hold that much energy in it. It's no longer necessary. 
and you transcend or move on. Mm. And once again, once you own the truth, you don't go back. Mm. So if you believe in reincarnation, you come back, you start with the baseline truths you already popped, and mm. you're, you keep going until you pop, you keep incarnating until you pop all these truths. Mm. And as you do that, you develop karmas and whatever else you know, that you gotta like release, but those are parts, part of the discovery process of popping all these truth bubbles. So really, everything here is an excuse to discover more truths. My family, my relationships, my career, all these are excuses to put myself in situations to interact with people or circumstances, to find my friction and trigger points, mm. to then backward engineer to figure out what that next truth bubble I need to pop. Mm. So without this environment and all these uh, trigger points, these programs and things, I wouldn't be able to discover these truths because there's no focus. Mm. It's an opportunity for growth. Everything is an opportunity for growth. Every interaction. So then I started realizing, wow, my priority. So I changed my priorities around. Like, I my priorities became on creating positive human interactions, positive emotional exchanges, and using the emotional exchanges which trigger me as an opportunity to discover another truth, pop another truth bubble, so I could create more positive emotional exchanges. And help other people discover their, you know, their mm. truth bubbles. So, or pop their truths, pop their truth bubbles, discover their truths, and um, or their universal truths. And then, which changed everything because my original thing was focusing on creating value for myself, creating validity. Mm. Right, I needed to validate my space in the world, yeah. or, or, or I needed to create. Um, I needed, I needed to prove that I deserve to be here. Mm. You know, and therefore, I was, so at first I started doing all these things because I was trying to create value in myself, mm-hmm. you know, and um, like all these different career paths and this and that. And then over time, I just I realized, I don't know, it's the other way around. I belong here. I, the, deserving, the fact that I'm alive shows I deserve to be here. Mm-hmm. What I need to do is discover my truths while I'm here. Mm-hmm. take advantage of this time and discover as many of the universal truths as I can mm-hmm. and help others do the same and as we do that individually and collectively that's how we really expand as not just a civilization but as a collective set of beings yeah you know? and that's where the power is and you know so I think just the rewiring or reprioritization of that simple thing completely transformed my entire attitude it released a lot of stress and a lot of fear because I didn't need to validate anymore, mm-hmm. or at least not as much. And, you know, there's always programs there you've got to work on, but mm-hmm. a big chunk of it was removed. And I, um, and then my interactions with people are so different. They're, they tend to be way more interested in understanding and compassionate than they are as self-serving. Mm-hmm. Or like, what can I get from this? What the tra- it's less transactional and more understanding and compassionate. If that's a priority, mm-hmm. so so my cultural container for my personal culture changed. The context of which you interact with the world changed. Exactly. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. So, for those people that are interested in upping their, so one of my uh, most recent uh, meditation epiphany is about living life at a higher vibration, energy level, mm-hmm. higher flow. So if you can break it down for us. Um, what are some of the tactical things that you do as a way to up your physical vibration, mental vibration, monetary vibration, whatever it may be, uh, creative vibration, mm-hmm. right? That would be very, very helpful for some of the people listening. Yeah, well, I mean, shedding fear, going mm-hmm. through the practice of identifying 
you know, when you're in a state of fear and all the things I mentioned before, mm-hmm. um, figuring out why you're in a state of fear and mm-hmm. then, and then releasing that fear and then repurposing your perception so you don't create it again. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a massive exercise. And through that, you will discover... That's the lowest hanging fruit. That's the lowest hanging fruit. That's something you do every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and just be aware of every day. If make that your practice. Mm-hmm. Then, and you do it for 30 days, then it becomes a habit. And you know, do that for a year, it becomes part of your culture. You know, mm-hmm. So your personal culture. So um, that... That's the biggest thing. Inquiry. Mm-hmm. Curiosity, inquiry, and trying to understand what, why, and what makes you afraid. You know, mm-hmm. So it, gives, it also creates a point of focus. And then the other thing was like alignment. I found that, um, that you know, me doing things that don't fuel me um, are not as sustainable. Mm-hmm. And I tend to drag out and delay things that I should be doing, you know, that do fuel me. And I keep, you know, so there's a period of time where I kept finding distractions in myself. I've, I've distracted myself. Oh, let me work on this project, even though what I really want to do is this. Mm. But then this feels like it'll, it'll be more validating quicker to me because mm. I could do it faster. It might be a job or something, a consulting gig or whatever. Mm. And I never get to the other thing mm. or I get to years and years later. So really engaging what you feel and your purpose, you know, evolve and change, right? So mm. you're, you're, you have your dharmas and then you have your maha dharma your what they call like your grand purpose mm. right I didn't know that one yeah so I didn't know about the dharma I didn't know the maha dharma yeah so the maha dharma is your grand purpose but you don't sometimes you have to peel back the layers of your purpose the purposes you come across like your immediate purpose might be well I got to make enough money so I could travel and do a backpacking trip mm. to Europe or Asia and when you get there when you do that and you get there then you discover your next purpose your next level so it's you peel back the layers and that happens as you keep engaging the world, right? Mm. But then over time, you uncovered enough layers that you might figure out your maha purpose or your maha dharma, uh, your, grand, your grand purpose, at least in this lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, And uh, sometimes you're lucky, you'll figure it out for multiple lifetimes. Like for me, I feel like this truth bubble, you know, this truth, you know, chasing truth is... A pretty you know a higher purpose and then i have all these mini purposes that help me find more of those things so i was able to figure out how to nest one with the other but you know that was after i did a lot of work though mm-hmm. so literally jumped out of planes and swam with a shark you know i mean just crazy things that at that time was insane it felt insane to me you know mm-hmm. um but after i did that or you know even in relationships relationships are the best way to find your trigger points. <laughs> you know, Buddha said like, you know, one of his followers said like, Buddha, how, what's the fastest way of being enlightened? <clears throat> he says, well, you have two paths. One, you can spend with me, you spend time with me and, you know, be in silence and meditate for the next 20 years or you can go get married. <laughs> yeah, that's you good. Know. That's and he a says, good one. And he said, yeah, he says, you're probably, you're probably getting enlightened faster by getting married mm-hmm. because the relationship is the counterpoint to finding your triggers. Mm-hmm. And we tend to draw in the relationships that help us find those triggers, which is the beautiful design mm. of how all this works, right? So there's something we need to work on. We'll end up finding the person that will help us, you know, bring it up. <laughs> and and if and when we and, you know we might get mad at them, but we should actually be thanking them. Yeah. Right. So we end up arguing with those, you know, that person because they're making us feel uncomfortable, whatever. But in fact, we should be thanking them if we have this framework, if we understand. Right you know, this larger perspective. So, so I think, um, 
yeah, I think that's kind of the uh, the zest of life, right? The uh, what we're doing here, and it's just, and we're all on our path. So you know, some people are earlier, some people are further down, and but we are all at that one point mm. at some point in time. You know, so yeah, so it goes back. There's no better or worse. You know, it's just we're all we're all in our place at the right time. You know, so. So, I appreciate that. I really appreciate it. And I'm going to tell my wife that, hey, you should really be thanking me <laughs> for triggering for, for you. For pissing you off all the time. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> um, tactically, though, so for people who is interested to be more creative or be more um, creative in the monetary sense. Oh, yeah, that was your question. Sorry. Is there, any, is there anything that's more direct other than the going inward and looking at the, the friction points? Yeah, so I mean, so there are external tactical strategies and things like that, and then mm-hmm. there's internal mindset. But the mindset ends up enabling the strategies, mm-hmm. right? So the mindset's the biggest part. So once again, removing fear is the biggest thing because then you don't have friction to move forward, mm-hmm. and you have way more... Uh, energy to get things done right so and then it's just and then alignment finding things that if you're going to spend that much energy in something um may as well spend on something you care about because you can Mm -hmm. fail on either one Mm -hmm. you know so you know so why not apply it to something that matters to you Mm -hmm. you know so so alignment would be the next thing and then the third thing is surround yourself by the people that I mean, I'll say the word best people you can, you know, you know, not best people in the sense of one being better than another, but the best people relevant to that area of interest. Ah, you know, um, skills or capacity. Yeah. Skills, access, you know, successful, you know, people have succeeded in something, they figure something out, Mm. you know, so whether you see it consciously or you just imbibe it subconsciously by being around them, Mm. you'll see the new uh, successes in the nuances. Mm. Right, it's all in the subtle little things like the way you say something to someone or the way you read between the lines of something else, you know. And it's you, you can spend a lot of time figuring it out yourself after a bunch of trials, or if you're around the right people mm. that have done that mm. and you can find yourself in their company, then you just learn it very quickly because mm. you'll see it happen over and over again. So, mm. so you know, surrounding yourself by the best people in the area that you really care about and be interested in, and then really just having a um. You know, a solid support system. Like whether you create it yourself, you know, whether you um, whether you fall into a community, like-minded community, or find a like-minded community. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really shoring up that sense of you know the support system where you feel like that belonging, that sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. For me, it's always been about belonging. So, mm-hmm. so that was my that was the thing. I, you know, some people, you know that's not their focus because they already figured that out and they'd already feel that way. That's not, you know, they solved that some, in some other time or some other life. So, um, yeah, going through that. Yeah. And then it goes back to just not being afraid really just go after it. And then it goes back to those fear things, not having the expectations, you know, allowing enough space. Actually, that's the, that'll be the, um, the last piece is giving yourself enough space mm. to discover and allow other things to happen and come in. You know, somebody once told me, like, a person I had dinner with who heads up the culture for Google, mm. um, she's also a coach. And one of the things she said that resonated with me is, I forgot what the exact numbers were, but I want to say you need to 
give your you know you have 20 to 30 percent in action and the other 78 percent is in space to allow things to happen hmm. so if you're scheduled back to back every day for the week you're not giving yourself enough space to allow the magical things to come in that you can't expect hmm. that could give you the step function increases mm. in opportunities otherwise you're going to follow a very linear trend mm. with that so all the step function uh growth happens in space it w- when you have space mm. that's very wise what you said but if you tell this to some eight type personalities mm. who have back-to-back because they feel like if i don't have that back-to-back schedule then I'm not being quote unquote maximizing my productivity. You're not offside, you're not optimizing production. That's true if you know what your end production state is. All right. Mm. So if you know, okay, I gotta finish this thing at this point in time mm. and even within that, like you could always make that product or that outcome, whether it's a film or whether it's an album or something, better. Mm. And more optimized if you have space, if you give yourself enough space. Mm. So productivity doesn't necessarily mean to fill in all your time, to maximize your time, which is what most people say. Productivity, the way I define it, is to maximize your outcome. Mm. Right? And if your outcome product is way better because you've given yourself 30% of that time as just free space to not think about anything, or not not do anything related to the project, mm. and you get a product out of it. You know, people measure not how much time you spend on something; they measure on what your outcome is. Right. I was with the um, the vice chairman of Amex in New York, and we were just chatting about a bunch of stuff. And this is when I was working on the Olympic stuff. And he invested in one of my friend's projects. And um, one of the things that he said that really stuck with me: I go, oh wow! So they just you know finished around you know, they just finished their next round. So that's great news. And he, t- he looked at me and he goes, yeah, that's fine. I go, oh, you don't seem too excited about it. He goes, I only care about results. And I'm like, really? What do you mean by that? He goes, yeah, I mean, that's good that they raised around and whatnot. But in the end, I only measure things by the final result. Because hmm. other, without, I mean, it doesn't matter how much they've done in between then. But if, you know, as an investor, if they don't give me my money back with a X amount of return, then it's a failure. Mm. So I measure things by results. And then the more people I talk to, you know, it, you know, that, you know, at that level of office, you know, for corporations and mm. especially in the for-profit business world and even in the nonprofit world, they all thought the same way. Mm. You know, their interest in results, you know, and all the other stuff are just details. Mm. So people measure people by what their final product or outcome is. Mm. So if you can optimize, and, and you know what mastery is? Mm. Master, a master is someone who creates the greatest impact with the least amount of effort. Yeah. All right. We focus on the, and you know, our schools are training people, not in mastery, they're training people in what you just said, using, trying to maximize your time, mm-hmm. use, you know, work hard and therefore, and then you're worthy. Mm. Well, the master is, uh, when someone gets to level of mastery, they work the least to have the most outcome. So actually on that note, do you feel that that is 
when the master have achieved that because he or she spent massive amount of effort earlier, then it becomes more and more elegant. Then there's space and there's. Well, you got to spend. You know, you definitely got. Well, you got to spend the time to learn the skills. So yeah, mm. but the problem is most people get stuck in that programming, mm. and they never leave that. Once they've learned the skills, they don't realize. Okay, I'm doing this because I don't want to spend all my time doing this. Mm. So I'm doing this now because once I know it, it becomes mm. easier. So just net recognizing the facts. So and people, I mean, not everyone ends up being a master. They just end up being an operator, mm-hmm. right? And once again, the master is the one that figures out. Okay. I can go from here to here mm. and save myself way more time mm. and have a way better output product um, you know with way less effort mm. so those that can achieve that those are the masters you know like like even if you look at um in martial arts, you know you see a young guy that's jumping up and down and kicking and punching and all that stuff, and the master's standing in one place barely moving mm. and then he only moves when he needs to. Mm-hmm. So he conserves the most amount of energy, mm-hmm. you know, but still has, I mean, you know, he expends the least amount of energy because right. he's conserving it. Right. But he still has, the final outcome is he's standing up the other ones on the ground. Right. Right. With the least amount of effort. So, mm-hmm. so somebody else, I was at dinner recently with the MAPS organization and um, one of the oh, guys there, cool. one of the guys there was uh, talking about, um, the founder of Neuralink, actually, and which um, one of Elon's companies, and uh, he's a young guy, and he was talking about how nature is incredibly efficient with energy. It optimizes energy in this structure that contains it. So, he, so he said, you know, it's hard. There's no excess energy because completely optimized within the space it's being used. So he's talking about the brain in that case, you know. So the brain, there's no excess energy to tap into because the brain has completely utilized all the energy in the most efficient way within the amount of structure available to use it in. Mm. And that's how nature, so nature's, nature's nature is to optimize efficiency within space. Mm-hmm. And if you look at cars or any, you know, anything, you know, that we build or that's in nature with plants or biology, it's the same thing. There's only enough energy to, that's optimized around the amount of space that's available to it. And um, so, and most of it's focused on energy conservation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the space holds energy and conserves it until it needs to expand it. It won't expend more energy than it needs to. Yeah. The human mind does that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But nature and biology, and it doesn't. So, so once again, it's more around the same concept around mastery. You expend energy when you need to, and the less energy you spend for the same or better output, you know, the more skilled you are. What are your communities? What kind of communities do you surround yourself with? A lot of communities. It's, um, yeah, my engineering community around building infrastructure. We've been nation building for 40 years, essentially. So, a lot of you know, just very professional people, you know, engineers. Um, and I talk about engineering, I talk about like civil engineers, people that are building like infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you do it wrong, people will die, right? right. So, so they're very serious people. You know, mm-hmm. if a bridge collapses, you, you know, that's a public a public works project. So, yeah. so you got to take that stuff very seriously. So, these are very sincere and very serious 
minded people and um, very intelligent and very sharp. So that's one community and they care, you know, about mm. these projects. And uh, another community is technology community, you know, people are developing software, things that, you know, that enable access and connection. Mm. Um, crypto community has been super interesting the last six, seven years. I've been involved in, with it. Um, you know, it, it range from serious sincere people to anarchists to, you know, uh, you know, creatives to programmers, you know, so it's like a complete bizarro universe <laughs> compared to the traditional tech universe. You know, I have a, you know, investor community being an investor and, you know, involved with a lot of, you know, friends with a lot of other investors ranging from venture to private equity to hedge funds to, mm. you know, to even, um, even foundations investing mm. in nonprofit stuff. And, um, mm. you know, part of the burner community, I've been burning man the last few years, Right. Yeah, this will be my fourth year this year, and uh, it's only a fourth. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, wow. Well, I, had, I was sick for four years, twenty twelve to twenty sixteen. I was completely really? incapacitated. I had Lyme disease, so oh, completely inca- incapacitated, and um, returned in twenty sixteen, and that was my first burn. Nice. And uh, I'm glad you're better. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That was this all this stuff around flows what helped me got better, mm-hmm. and. Uh, without any meds so was, yeah so this was me hacking fear was my first stage of my life the second stage was hacking flow mm-hmm. <laughs> so, or hacking lime in this case through flow mm-hmm. um and uh i don't know I'm still discovering communities you know the creative the, you know i've been in the music industry for a bit as well so voting grammy member um, mm-hmm. my sister was on the grammy board of governors or trustees whatever they call it uh so that's been a community um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm in a lot of different communities. But, you are, uh, you know, the World Economic Forum community. The, yeah, so so TED community. I'm a TEDster. That's so right. Part of the TED community. So a lot of yeah, a lot of communities. And um, so, what's the through line? What do you think is the through line? Just really interesting people that care mm. about something. And usually the people that care about something that has to do with the larger impact on society are the ones that resonate the most with. Mm. You know, something that helps integrate society into a more connected species. Mm. You know, infrastructure is connecting people through roads and bridges and things like that, right? Uh, technology is connecting people through, you know, wires and, and software. You know, TED's connecting people through ideas. Uh, World Economic Forum's, you know, connecting people through policies and, you know, creating policies that serve, you know, the planet and the species. So, um, so yeah, I think that's, those are the types of people and communities that tend to, burners connecting people just through connection, you know, just by, by releasing all the old, you know, for nine days being in a space where, like, none of the other stuff matters. You could just be, mm. you know, and enjoy each other and enjoy art, you know. Mm. Um Music's connecting people through music, you know, so um, through sound, which is powerful. Yeah, so that's, I think, people that care about connection. Mm. So if one look at your life many decades from now, right, and say, wow, Rami was quite a man, quite a being, infinite being, you know, he had quite a life. What would yourself say would be the kind of like the metrics? Of how you measure yourself, the throughput that you were mentioning earlier. Right? If I could track it, 
if you, uh, if you want to, you know, like if you put some words with it, like what would you track? Because you do a lot of different things. Right? Yeah, I a mean, lot of different domains. Well, how do you? My sister asked me one time, like, what would I want to be remembered as? Mm. You know, if I was no longer here. And, you know, there's the external memory of what people remember you as, and then, then the intimate memories that, that people remember you as. So the external would be some of the created, you know, like Steve Jobs created an incredible company that impacted lots of, you know, millions, if not billions. So you do want to create large companies that way? Then I'm just giving an example, necessarily. Um, and, uh, you know, but then there's this internal, the people that have known him, like, what did that leave? So for me, it's like, I wanted to be the guy that people felt good around that made them smile. And that's what I wanted to be remember, remembered as. Mm. Um, and then what I want to leave behind for people that don't know me, mm. you know, those are people that have met me or do know me, I want to be that person that either made them smile, laugh, or just made them feel good, feel mm. better when they're around me than when they're not. Mm. Um, people that don't know me, I want to leave things that make them smile or feel better, like my uh, graphic novel or my music or my piano music or my um, mm. you know my books or things that help connect, inspire people to really tap into what they what they really could access if they wanted to, mm. you know? um, and they just made them yeah you know, just make them feel good and hopeful and alive. Mm. Thank you. It's a beautiful place to end. Uh, raise their vibration. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Cool. Things that raise people's vibrations. So, if someone wants to find out more about you know your 2019 passion project, one out of many, where would they go and check out? So, pianosoundbath.com is one place. So, one thing I've been doing lately is I've been doing these piano sound bath experiences or meditation experiences where I'll people lay down and I'll play the piano for an hour, mm. just improvise and. Um, and while people are laying down, they could drop into this deep, blissful, meditative flow state. Mm-hmm. Uh, I call them flow piano sound baths. And, um, and in that space, when they're in that space, we've been getting all sorts of really interesting responses ranging from people having these blissful, psychedelic-like experiences, like dancing across the universe, um, to people that are having, you know, emotional releases, you know, um, even a lot of times releasing emotional trauma that they've had in the past. I had a guy come to me and said that he cried the whole time. He had no idea why. Mm. until he realized he just realized released 15 years of trauma from his father passing away mm. and then this other third bucket is people actually having some physical pain or ailments that are relieved or even completely gone you know, I had a woman that had shoulder surgery that came to me later and said after three months after my shoulder surgery it's the first time I not felt pain in my shoulder you know and and it just goes up from there so so there's all these interesting like perceptual, emotional, and physiological experiences that people have been having that I really wanted to go deeper into that because that's like me reaching one to many mm. by just being in my own flow, you know, playing the piano and expressing that through a piano. So so that would be what I'd direct people right now. Um, I'm writing a book. My I'm writing my two books, Hacking Fear and then Chasing Hope, which is focus on fear and then flow. Yeah. Uh, I want to read it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can't I wanna, wait. I want to finish it. Yeah. Can't wait. And then if you're interested in Nikola Tesla, there's also my graphic novel, The Inventor, the story of Tesla. Uh, that was really exciting for me because it really helped me get in the head of one of who I think is one of the greatest inventors and minds, you know, that lived in, you know, the last millennia. Mm. And, um, 
and uh, really see the world from his eyes and I try to put that into you channel him I channeled him yeah <laughs> I channeled him and put that into that graphic novel which is you know might be a great art combined with great storytelling so um, yeah I think those are the three things that I'd mm-hmm. recommend people to and then anyone that's interested in water and blockchain that's a company we're building right now mm. so uh, that's more on the professional side tell us more about that what's that uh, it's a company called concept? Water Leisure and mm-hmm. we're just trying what we're trying to do is securitize water rights ownership and create mm-hmm. access for people to invest in water that normally mm-hmm. would never have access to mm-hmm. and we feel like the idea is we get more people to invest in water that wouldn't have access to it then we have more people engaged in water mm-hmm. and then there are more people interested in protecting our water mm-hmm. you know because there's more of a public awareness around it right. otherwise right now 1% of the people the population controls water for 99% people right. in this country and the 99% people don't know what's happening to their water until they turn the tap on mm. and uh, I think that's too much trust mm. that's put into our systems without having a feedback loop mm. of public interest you know and Flint would never have happened if there was a feedback loop of public right. engaging the 1% mm. that's managing the water for us so all very important projects yeah you're a beautiful man thank you thank you thank you beautiful all right listeners thank you so much for listening if you have any questions about what we discussed anything that needs to be answered please go to noblewarrior.com forward slash group we'll be happy to answer those questions there take care now bye